But tonight, uh, let's uh, have a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you again for our salvation that we did not earn, do not deserve, but through grace is given to us in the person of your Son. We thank you for his finished work on the cross on our behalf, for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, his illumination of our hearts to the gospel, his call to faith, and his uh, empowering ministry in our lives. We ask that you would uh, open our eyes to the scriptures tonight as we look to them uh, in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, well, let's uh, go back to page 137 and we'll do a little review again on um, pre-tribulationism. Remember that we have been going... The, the, the big picture here is to go, go back to the fact that we have an inherited view of the end times out of the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us about Israel. It tells us about the nations. It speaks in terms of tribes, cultures, nations. When you come to the New Testament... You have the nation Israel as a nation not accepting the Messiah. Therefore, what you have is a subset of Jews who do accept the Messiah versus the majority who do not accept the Messiah. Well, this creates a dilemma because whereas in the Old Testament you had a remnant, the remnant was always part of the nation Israel. Where in the New Testament, the remnant breaks away from the nation becomes disassociated from the nation, not only disassociated from the nation, but begins to mix with Gentiles on a common basis. And this is new. This is not true of the Old Testament. So the New Testament then introduces us to something called the church. Now, lest we become um, confused here, just remember... That believers in the Old Testament are saved the same way they're saved in the New Testament. We're not talking about two different ways of salvation here. What we are talking about is that God has different programs for different time periods in history. That's dispensationalism. It's simply recognizing that if you interpret the scriptures literally, you see that before the call of Abraham, back in the Old Testament, were there any Jews? Was there any Israel? The answer is no, there wasn't. So, what was there? There were nations. And how did God look at those nations? They were all the sons of Noah. They were all part and parcel of the way of covenant. There wasn't any Jew-Gentile difference then. There was just the nations. You had people like Melchizedek, who were king-priests, who inherited the theology from the Noahic Bible. They carried over stories of Adam and Eve, Enoch, the Flood. They carried through the gospel, the promise of the deliverer that was to come from the seed of the woman. This was all the religion at the beginning of what we call our civilization. And then we found that rapidly, although as brilliant as that group of people were that colonized the planet, very rapidly, uh, with architectural wonders, pyramids, um, the navigational uh, skills that they had, boat building skills that they had, 
just amazing when you think about it that they colonized the entire planet Earth, carrying with them the surviving animals out of the ark of Noah and scattering that, that livestock around in different continents in different ways. And then we have the geniuses in the last 200 years in the theory of evolution that think that uh, the marsupials in Australia represent a completely different evolutionary line when in fact what they represent probably is a unique colonization by the early survivors of the flood. So in any case, we have this difference in the Old Testament. Then you come down to Abraham and his family becoming a nation, and now we have something new, Israel. And God changes his way. He doesn't deal with Israel like he does with a nation. Something's changed. There's a different administration of God's will. So the life for believers who are Gentiles, they had one way of life. For believers who are in the nation Israel, they had another way of life. That's the difference. That's a dispensational difference. And so similarly, when we come to the New Testament, we have this thing called the church. And the church is not Israel. The church is not Gentiles. The church is not a nation. church doesn't have a land. The church doesn't have political offices. So what is the church? The church is this strange new thing made up of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the dilemma that we have in prophecy is that since most prophecy was given to Israel and given in terms of Israel, we have Israel coming into the last days with a millennial kingdom promised. That's the kingdom of world peace. Dominion of the the Messiah of Israel becoming the son of man, the one who reigns over all the nations. And all these nations are related here by way of their allegiance to the God of Israel. Now that's the language of Old Testament prophecy. There's no church in there. There's nothing like that. There's no story about Jews and Gentiles being equal. They're distinguished in all these prophecies. So that being the case, the next problem comes is, well, what about the church? Where does the church go? Clearly Israel exists in history and will go into this messianic kingdom that is part of the nation, the nation that believes, that isn't judged, that isn't purged, that isn't removed, they survive on earth and go into this kingdom. That's the future of Israel. However, when you come to New Testament passages, there's no such kingdom mentioned about uh, as a church moving into it in natural bodies. The destiny given to the church is that there's a rapture coming. There's a resurrection coming. And we'll be face to face with the Lord. And he makes us kings and priests to rule on earth, but in resurrection bodies. So the question then becomes, how do you relate Israel and the church? And so we look back in the Old Testament and we see there's a time of tribulation prior to this messianic kingdom. And there are different views that we've studied have the church either going into the tribulation or not going into the tribulation. Some views, the post-tribu view, says that Israel goes through this state and the church also goes through this state all the way up almost to the end when there's just a little bit of time in there. And that's the post-trib position. Some people believe the three-quarter trip. The church goes in there, stays up until the three-quarter trip. And then it's the wrath of God, and the church has to escape that so it gets out at the three-quarter point. Then there's the mid-tribulation people. People say that the church goes up to the mid-part of the tribulation. 
and we've been studying the pre-tribulational position, which doesn't have the church in the tribulation at all. The church is raptured somewhere ahead of that tribulational period. So that in the tribulation, then, you revert to the global sociological structure prior to Pentecost. It's a reversion back to that. And that's why from Revelation chapter 4 forward, all the way to Revelation 18 itself, the, the book is written in terms not of the church. Church's word isn't even mentioned. It's written in terms of Jew and Gentile. So, the pre-tribulational position, page 137, figure 10, shows uh, that the church is raptured prior to the tribulation, and there may be a gap in there. And I mention that gap because there's no hard and fast scripture that links the rapture to the beginning of the tribulation. Because the beginning of the tribulation, by definition, is when the Antichrist makes his treaty with Israel. That sets it off. That's, that starts the clock. But there's nothing in Scripture that says that that has to happen uh, 1.3 minutes after the rapture. So, we don't know. And that's the unknown. And there's been gaps in God's prophetic program. We're going to see one tonight. There's been gaps in God's prophetic programs before. Where with Daniel, for example, uh, Daniel thought in, in 5.16 that the 70 weeks are finished. We should be going back to the land. Let's go. And he prayed. And Gabriel came and said, Well, Daniel, um, sorry to tell you this, but it's going to be seven times seven um, that you're going to go back on schedule, but it's not the regathering, the great final regathering. That's being postponed. And, Dan, and all of a sudden, Gabriel opens up history that there's a big, long, four or five century uh, intercalation going on here. And God has done that numerous times. Do it in the garden. Um, Eve, some people, people believe, when uh, she named her son, uh, she thought that her son, first son, um, would be the Messiah. And then she found out, well, no, it's going to not be that he's not the Messiah. He, the Messiah is going to come, but he's not coming this soon. So there's always this kind of postponement. And so that's a process that we just observe as we look down through the corridors of time and how God works. Okay, so that's pre-tribulationism. Um, we mentioned the uh, down the bottom page 137. We said that advocates of this position believe it best solves several challenges. First, it clearly solves the problem of keeping the church from the wrath of God in a way that is compatible with Revelation 3.10. That's one of the strongest points of pre-tribulationism, because Revelation 3.10 says the church will be kept not from tribulation. It says the church will be kept from the hour of tribulationism. So the question then is, to how do you exclude the church from that period of time of the Great Tribulation? The answer pre-tribulationism gives, the church doesn't go through the tribulation. That's how it's excluded from that period. Second, it maintains the entire 70th week as a time of judgment focused upon Israel and the nations as this judgmental period is presented in the Old Testament. So pre-tribulation persists in the Old Testament view of the tribulation. 
doesn't try to change it, doesn't try to alter it, and that's in the sense of bringing the church into it. Church wasn't in it in the Old Testament. Church is an interest in it now. Third, it allows enough time for the Bema Seat Judgment and the Marriage Supper of the Lamb to occur prior to the return of Christ. So you have all this period of time in here between the rapture and the return of Christ to accomplish the Bema Seat Judgment and the Marriage Supper. Preparing for the Marriage Supper. So those events... However they unfold, which the scripture doesn't tell us all the details, but however those events unfold, there's adequate time in there. Then finally, fourth thing is, it permits a literal interpretation of the millennial kingdom beginning with natural bodies. The reason for that is that because the rapture has occurred, you have believers and people becoming believers prior to the return of Christ, And so there are people who are believers in natural bodies ready to go into the kingdom. And if you have the the rapture, like the post-tribulationists say, if you have that rapture occur right before the kingdom, then by definition you don't have any believers in natural bodies. Why? Because all the believers have been resurrected. Well, if all believers are resurrected, there aren't any believers left in natural bodies. Well, therefore, then how do you explain the kingdom? to start something. The kingdom isn't going to start with unbelievers. It's going to start with believers. That's the whole point of the kingdom. That's why it's the kingdom. So, these are the reasons why pre-tribulationism believes that it is the best solution. Now, there are objections to pre-tribulation. This has been raised. And on page 138, we've been going through some of those objections. Four, in particular, middle paragraph. Um, This is not to say that pre-tribulation is without difficulties. Critics have pointed to the historical circumstances that occurred at the time its modern father, John Nelson Darby, worked out its first systematic treatment. Critics have argued that it misinterprets Matthew 24, that it misinterprets Thessalonians 2, and critics have accused it of fostering an escapist attitude towards suffering. Okay. First, and we covered this last time, the first uh, paragraph on page 138 deals with a historical issue. The historical issue is, and, and people from a Reformed background tend to get very uppity about this. Now, I, I've never really understood uh, why they do that, because if Roman Catholics do it to them, they don't like it. In other words, Roman Catholics can say to a Reformed person, look... Uh, you people are Johnny come lately. You didn't show up until the 16th century. Church been around for 16 centuries, and we Roman Catholics, uh, you know, we represent that stream. So you guys are the ones that come late. Well, now obviously Reformed people don't don't buy into that. How do they defend against it? They simply say that the Holy Spirit is illuminating gradually the Scriptures, and in the 16th century, there was the time the, the issues of soteriology were illuminated. Well, if that's the case, then what's the objection to saying that in the 19th century was a time when the Holy Spirit illuminated eschatology? So, so they're inconsistent in their objection at this point. I'll have more to say on that later tonight. But the point is that as you go down through church history, what did we say? We, we said from the time of the Lord Jesus Christ to 2000 so far, the, the church has been growing. 
it has been growing in its sense of organizing the doctrinal truths of Scripture. We said in the first three or four centuries, the emphasis was on the Lord Jesus Christ. And those were, were a lot of knock-down, drag-out arguments that went on. And, and cults today, like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, they always want to trot out these arguments. The poor people don't realize that all those arguments that the modern cults bring up were answered in the first three or four hundred years. Just they're historically ignorant people who don't go back and see that these arguments, Jehovah's Witness, for example, are nothing more than modern versions of an ancient heresy called Arianism. And Arianism was answered emphatically, clearly. So it's, it's not new. The cults are not bringing something new. After that, in the Middle Ages, the emphasis was on clarifying what the cross was about. First it was the person of Christ, then it was the work of Christ. And you remember there were two views. There was one view that said uh, Christ dying on the cross was, uh, was an example of a martyrdom, it was an example of this, it was an example of that, and it should stimulate us subjectively as we look at this wonderful example. That's, it's a subjectivist view of the cross. Versus the Islamic view, which was an objective view. That is, that Christ actually did something on the cross. It's not just us looking and saying, oh, gee, that's inspiring. The Islamic view is that Jesus did something on the cross, whether it inspires you or not. He completed a work there. So you can see the church grows. The first three or four hundred years, the church wasn't clear on what Christ did on the cross. After the Middle Ages, the church became clear as to what Jesus did on the cross. And in the 16th century, this is when the issue was, how, what about faith? How is a person saved? And the church had always said a per people are saved by faith. What was new in the Reformation was people are saved by faith alone. Faith alone. Any Roman Catholic will agree with you that you were saved by faith. They believe that too. But when you ask them what about faith, then things get a little gooey and, and mixed up with works here and merits. Whereas the Reformation holds that we are saved by faith alone. That the authority of the church is the scripture alone. We believe in Jesus Christ alone. We don't believe in Christ and the church. We don't believe in the scripture and tradition. We don't believe in faith and works. We believe in the scripture alone. We believe in Christ alone. We believe by faith alone. The little word A-L-O-N-E. Alone. That's the Protestant Reformation. And that is what is so objectionable even among so-called Protestants today. It's amazing that people, even within some Reformed circles, forget their own Reformation theology. But that is a period of time in the 16th and 17th century. Now, what we're talking about is what about the future? And that was begun to be clarified, really, in the 19th and 20th centuries. 
And so there's a sequence here. So it's not peculiar. There's nothing freaky about the fact that eschatology hasn't been clarified in the last 200 years. You see the point? All the doctrines took time, and they have been pedagogically revealed by the Holy Spirit as he's placed the church in the milieu of a certain kind of history. The Holy Spirit has taught the church really by almost beating the church into submission. It started in the book of Acts. The only way that church ever got outside of the city of Jerusalem was because it was persecuted. And because it was persecuted, it responded to that by dispersing. And it's the same thing here. The person, the Lord Jesus Christ, would never have been clarified had God not allowed heretics and heresies to come into the church. And finally, believers began to say, no, this is not right. And they went back to the scriptures, always going back to the scriptures, the Bereans, going back to the scriptures, back to the scriptures, back to the scriptures. That's the story of this. They went back to the scriptures to find about the person of Christ. They were driven back to the scriptures to find out what did Christ do on the cross. They were driven back to the scriptures to find out how is a person saved. And finally, in, in eschatology, they are driven back to the scriptures to what is the destiny of the church and what is the destiny of Israel. And in the paragraph on page 138, I point out that, yes, John Nelson Darby did a great amount of work, but he wasn't the only guy. You'd say the argument, the same thing with the Martin Reformation. Well, gee, that was Martin Luther. Well, it wasn't just Martin Luther. It was a bunch of other people around Martin Luther and lived in the same time period. So... One of the, the slanders against dispensationalism that you will read in a book, you, you'll get Christian book distributors of somebody, I don't know whether it's still there, but a guy by the name of, I um, can't think of his name now, McPherson, I guess is his name, published a book in which he argued that dispensationalism was actually the result of some freak teenage girl who saw visions, and, uh, she w- and this is 1830, and uh, Darby somehow got hold of what this teenage girl was doing, and um, that's how he invented dispensationalism. Well, the fly in that particular ointment is that we have biographical evidence that it was in 1827 when Darby came to his conclusion about Israel being different from the church. Furthermore, examination of, of uh, Margaret MacDonald, this is the girl that was freaking out, um, examination of her so-called prophecies, they're not pre-tribulational. So, people who say that either don't know what they're talking about, or frankly, they're, they're just deceptive people. Now, also, you can see, I, I list Morgan Edwards. Look at the dates on Morgan Edwards. He had already outlined a dispensational scheme as early as that. Jonathan Edwards had outlined a dispensational scheme. Men were trying to deal with history then. Here's the new colonies of America. The, the Western Hemisphere has been explored. There's new peoples, and, and people wanted to know where's history going. They had broken out of just Eurocentric thinking. They became globalists in that sense. They were globally aware. They wanted to know where's history going. So they started think, going back to the Bible. Where's history going? And, but the, the, the thing is, in the last few years... 
Uh, you'll note the date down the bottom of the footnote, 1995. It was in 1993 or 1994 that this manuscript was discovered, uh, dating from the 4th century. And in that manuscript, he's talking about a seven-year tribulation that's pre-trib and a, and a pre-trib rapture. Now look at that one. And this is 4th century. So, that argues against the idea that nobody ever thought of pre-tribulationism until Darby's day. Well, nonsense. Here's Pseudo-Ephraim talking about it in the 400s. Okay. Tonight, we're going to spend some time on the second objection because this is very weighty and this is a, a thing that a lot of people find difficult. Uh, and that is the issue of Matthew 24. So, let's turn to Matthew 24. And while you're uh, in Matthew 24, if you'll also look over on uh, Zechariah 14. If you have a scrit of paper so you can flip between those two passages, that's where we'll be working tonight, the rest of the evening. Matthew 24 is a crux in eschatology. Obviously because it is the Lord Jesus Christ's sermon. And... Inevitably, apart from the pre-tribulational position, most people who are not pre-tribulationists mix the church into Matthew 24. So that if you skim down Matthew 24 and you look, for example, down at verse um, uh, 31... If the church is in Matthew 24, then verse 31 becomes a reference to the rapture. And people always want to put the rapture into verse 31. It's very common, and that's the post-tribulational position. Now, if you're not a post-tribulationist, and don't have the rapture at the end of the tribulation, and you're not a pre-tribulationist, so you don't have the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation, You've got to really mess around with verse 31. You've got to figure out how can that be the rapture and yet the church not be exposed to the wrath of God that precedes verse 31. And there are various schema that are done to do that. And they, that's the mid-trib and the three-quarter trip. But for my opinions here, I, I'll just tell you this, that the, there's only two stable positions out of the four that we've studied. Pre, mid, three-quarter, and post. The only two stable positions are post-tribulationism and pre-tribulationism. The other guys are halfway houses, trying to mix the two positions, and they get in trouble. But in Matthew 24, if you'll follow now on page 139, let me introduce the issue here. How does pre-tribulationism respond to the accusation that it misinterprets Matthew 24? Every futurist position discussed so far, except pre-tribulationism, insists that the church and Israel are somehow both involved in Matthew 24. I might add, there have been historically some pre-tribulationists who have argued that the church is in Matthew 24. That is not a majority position because, again, it sets up a problem that's, that you wind up ooching your way over to becoming a post-trib if you do that. 
Most insist that Matthew 24:31 parallels rapture passages because of certain similarities. Okay? Everybody acknowledges the similarities. Pre-tribulationists do not deny there are similarities between the rapture and verse 31. So everybody agrees to that. Their argument from similarities, however, undercuts the distinction made previously between Israel and the church and between the return and the rapture. If both the church and Israel are spoken of in Matthew 24, and these distinctions are weakened, notice, post-tribulationism is the logical result. That's what I mean by it's stable. If you, if the halfway positions slide one way or the other way. You either slide toward pre-tribulationism or you slide toward post-tribulationism. In contrast to these views, pre-tribulation maintains the distinctions between Israel and the church and the return and the raptures. See, this is something that you've noticed as we study this, is that distinction between the church and, and Israel, between the rapture and the return... Pre-tribulation is known for that. It makes these distinctions. Matthew 24 is viewed as Jesus addressing Jewish disciples representing, uh, representing Israel here, not the church. So, right away, the question is, in Matthew 24, whom do the disciples represent? You say, well, gee, they're disciples that in a few weeks are going to be Christians. They're going to be the founders of the church. I mean, isn't Jesus talking to them, the fathers of the church? So doesn't this passage apply to the church? Well, now, if you'll think about how carefully I went through the book of Acts, you should think of a timeline. Let's put this together now and think. What did we say happened during the career of the Lord Jesus before he was crucified? What was Jesus' message? His message was that the kingdom is imminent, was it not? The kingdom of God is here. Accept me as your Messiah and you'll have your kingdom. Remember we studied Matthew, the Matthew 25 parable where the invitation was given? The invitation? Invitation to what? The invitation to the kingdom. And to whom was that invitation given? It was given to Israel. Okay. So prior to the death of the Lord Jesus, we had invitation number one. Did we not? That invitation was rejected. Jesus was crucified. He rose again from the dead. And what did Peter do in Acts 2? And Acts 4. He turned around and he talked to whom? Where was he talking? What city? Jerusalem. And to whom was Peter talking in Acts 2 and Acts 4? The leaders of the nation who had rejected Jesus. And what was Peter's address to those people, that leadership of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. It was, if you repent and be baptized, the times of refreshing will come. Now, that's an Old Testament code word for the kingdom. The long-awaited kingdom would come. You people have invitation number two. But Jesus had indicated prior to this in Matthew 25 that the invitation would go forward 
go out. But this time, not only would the invitation be rejected, but what else would begin to happen? The king's representatives would be killed. And what what does happen immediately in the book of Acts? The king's representatives are killed. Now, so far, we haven't got the gospel of the church here. We have an invitation going out to Israel. It doesn't become clear that the church uh, has even formed back here in Pentecost until way down here in the book of Acts. Acts 15, they're still struggling with what, you know, is this a church? What's going on here? So it's years and years and years later that this uncovers. Now, that's not an argument that Jesus can't address the church in the Gospels in the sense of preparing prophetically for the church, like in John 14 and so on. All that's to say is that when you read passages like Matthew 24 and the disciples are sitting there, you can't just naively jump to the conclusion that they're, they're, they're representing the church when they're sitting there. How do you know they're not representing the nation Israel that hasn't yet received its second invitation? Let me show you why that's a problem. Hold Matthew 24 for a moment. Go over to Matthew 10. Same disciples now. Now the question is, all right, if Matthew 24 is addressed to the disciples as representatives of the church, what do you do with Matthew 10? In Matthew 10, he summons his 12 disciples. He gave them authority, so forth, lists them. And in verse 6, where does he tell them to go? Does he tell them to go out into the world and preach the gospel? No. He says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, who are they representing? They are sent on a mission to the nation Israel. They're not representing the church here. Look at the context of the passage. They are representing Israel. They are the remnant of Israel addressing the nation of Israel with a very Jewish message. So, in Matthew 10, summary of this point, in Matthew chapter 10, the disciples are clearly not representing the church. They are representing Israel. Therefore, it is not true that you have to have them representing the church in Matthew 24. Particularly since the church hasn't even formed yet. And not only has it not formed, Israel hasn't even totally rejected the Messiah yet. There's a contingency in history. Now, you have to be careful. I believe in the sovereignty of God. And I'm not undermining the sovereignty of God in any way. But let's face it. God has contingencies in history that are very real. Now, how he has contingencies and yet is totally sovereign is a mystery. We don't know how he does that. But think of the fact. What did the Lord Jesus say when confronted with the horror of the cross? He said, I could pray to my Father and he would do what? He would send legions of angels to defend me. Now, let's just suppose Jesus had prayed that then where would the atonement be? The cross wouldn't have happened. But clearly that was a contingency because Jesus spoke about it. He said, I could pray now. And I could be rescued from any power right now. I could have hundreds and hundreds of angels come to protect me. I could call in the bodyguards. 
And there, where, where would you be? See? So Lord Jesus could have done that. Now, he's not faking it. He's not saying, oh, gee, guys, this is a cute thought. That was a real option, a real contingency for the Lord Jesus. And so also, when we come down here in Peter in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, that's not a phony invitation. Israel could have repented at that point. And the kingdom would have come. The times of refreshing would have come. But they didn't. And God knew they wouldn't. But God gave the invitation anyway. In fact, he gave a parable, said he knows there will be two invitations, and they'd both be rejected. But they were genuine invitations nonetheless. So Matthew 24, first of all, does not have to have the church in it. And the reason for saying that, by way of interpretation, is that Matthew 10 doesn't have the church in it. Now, let's go further. The disciples in Matthew 24 are seated where? They're seated in a place where they can see what? The temple. And we know, of course, that they're actually on the Mount of Olives, verse 3. Now, they are sitting on the Mount of Olives as Jewish men who had studied the Old Testament. And they were asking about the temple. It has been suggested, and I believe this is a true suggestion, a very good suggestion, that the disciples at this point are thinking of a particular Old Testament passage. Hold the place, Matthew 24, and turn to Zechariah 14. Remember when Zechariah was written? Zechariah is one of the last books in the Old Testament. Closest in time to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives, at the end of the Old Testament era, Zechariah gives the last few Old Testament passages about the future of the nation Israel. So to a Jew in Jesus' day, the most recent prophecies that he would have had are prophecies like these in the book of Zechariah. Okay? The disciples have the New Testament? No. Didn't have the New Testament. Their Bible ended a few books after Zechariah here. Not in that order, because it's a different Jewish order, but chronologically. Now look at Zechariah 14.1. Here's the prophecy of the coming day of the Lord. A day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. So it's talking to Jews that are being persecuted, been defeated nationally, and they will. it's a day when Israel will be delivered. Now you keep this in mind. Look carefully at verse 1 and reread verse 1. A day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. You'll be the beneficiaries. Positive point. Okay? Day of the Lord. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured. The houses plundered. The women ravished. Half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand where? 
will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move to the north, the other half to the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azil. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Israel. Then the Lord my God will come and the holy ones with him. And it will come about in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. It will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And it will be come about that in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the east, the other toward the west. It will be in summer as well as winter. And the Lord will be king over what? He will be king over all the earth. The land will be changed and so forth and so on. Verse 11, the people will live in it. There will be no more curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now, that's a view meshing together the, both the millennial kingdom and, and, by the last verse, the eternal state. This is a, a, a view of the future that Zechariah has. Now, put yourselves in the disciples' position. They look at that temple. And what does Jesus say? Hold the place here in Zechariah. says we're going to flip back and forth. Hold the place in Zechariah 14 and go to Matthew 24. Verse 2. The Lord introduces a startling thought. Do you not see all these things, he says? I truly say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And the disciples are shocked. The temple is going to be torn down. And, of course, the, the, the context here, speaking, what would that mean? I mean that Israel is being defeated, right? Well, if Israel is being defeated and the temple is going to be destroyed, and you're thinking in terms of Zechariah, what does Zechariah promise? That in the day when the nations come to destroy, who's going to come back? The Lord Jesus is going to come back, right? So there's a, there's a chronological sequence of thought here. In the day when Jerusalem is going to be ravished, in the day when the city is going to be destroyed, the Messiah will come back. Well, that, they're all excited. And so, verse 3, they ask him, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now they're talking about their coming. Well, he knows they've identified the Lord Jesus with Yahweh already here. The sign of your coming. And they're thinking in terms of Zechariah. Who's coming in Zechariah? Yahweh. The Lord's coming. So they've already got it together. That this Jesus, this carpenter, is more than a carpenter. He's the God-man. He's the Lord of the nation Israel. What's the sign of your coming? And when will these be? And, and now the Lord begins to expand it. He says, many will be, uh, I am the Christ, and so I mislead you. Here with wars, rumors of wars, so you're not frightened, for those must take place. For nation will rise against nation, and they will tribute to tribulation. Many will fall away, false prophets going on, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, therefore, now verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now what Jesus is doing is he's suddenly referencing Daniel. And together with Zechariah, one sees that in verse 15, 
You can't have an abomination without the Jewish cultists, that is, the temple, built. Now we've got a little problem here. Jesus began the chapter by saying what was going to be destroyed? The temple. Yet in verse 15, this abomination of desolation is going to be in the temple that exists. So when's the destruction of the temple? Somehow there's a destruction of the temple and then there must be a rebuilding of the temple so that their abomination desolation can occur in the temple. Well, what is Jesus doing? Well, I picture what Jesus is doing at bottom of page 139 and top of page 140. That he is doing to Zechariah's prophecy what Gabriel the angel did to Jeremiah's prophecy. In that, the top view, which we, I've labeled, and I'm sorry for the way the printer printed this out, <clears throat> Uh, Zechariah view and the Jesus view. If you look in the top sequence of boxes, that's that Zechariah passage. Look at the sequence. First, the Gentiles destroy Jerusalem. Second, the Messiah comes to Mount of Olives to rescue the city. Okay? Third, astronomical and geophysical catastrophes. Verses 4 to 8. And fourth, the messianic kingdom and world peace. So that's just a straightforward sequence of the Zechariah 14 passage. Verses 1 and 2, Gentiles destroy Jerusalem. The top of page 140. Messiah comes to Mount of Olives to rescue. Then there's astronomical and geophysical catastrophes. Then there's the messianic kingdom. And we saw that from Zechariah 14. Correct? Okay. Now Jesus view. Watch what he does. Gentiles destroy Jerusalem. So what is Jesus doing then when he talks about the temple being destroyed? He's talking about Gentiles destroying Jerusalem. Is he not? Is he not taking that block? But what Jesus does with it is interesting. Because he then goes to talk about a rebuilt temple where the abomination is going to happen. So here we have the classic thing. And how many times have we seen this in prophecy? Jesus talks about the destruction. We'll call this D. The destruction of the temple. Then he talks about, by implication, the rebuilding of the temple. And then he talks about the catastrophes that will occur. And yet he also talks about this catastrophe. What has he done to the first block of Zechariah? He has taken Zechariah 14, verses 1 and 2, and he has split them and put into that prophecy a bunch of time, which he then will call the times of the hope, the times of the Gentiles. So Jesus is announcing in his discussion, he's injecting a whole new age called times of the Gentiles. Whereas Zechariah 
in his day saw just these sequence of events. He saw Gentiles destroying the city. Then immediately he saw the Messiah rescuing the city. But Jesus takes these two events and he pulls them apart. And he begins to fill in details. Yes, the Gentiles will come to destroy the city. Not only will they destroy the city, they will destroy absolutely the temple. But before I come, there will be other things that happen, he says, including the desecration of the temple. And when you see the desecration of the temple, then flee. And so... And then, of course, if you compare this with Luke, he talks about these times of the Gentiles. So the idea here is that Jesus is adding details. Notice he parallels the rest of Matthew 24. Zechariah spoke of astronomical and geophysical catastrophes. Did he not? What does Jesus speak of? Astronomical and geophysical catastrophes. And then the Messianic kingdom. And his the gathering of the diaspora and the kingdom. And that's where verse 31 fits together which we'll see in just a moment. The thing I want you to notice is there is a form to this. Don't read the church into Matthew 24. Read Zechariah into Matthew 24. That's where don't, you can't Monday morning quarterback this thing. They don't have what we have the church at this point. They have what Zechariah had. And Jesus is expanding their understanding of the Old Testament Israel. Now, there's another thing to notice here. In the Zechariah passage, do you get any hint, any hint, that God forsakes Israel? On the contrary, what is the whole point of Zechariah 14? That God comes to redeem Israel. Okay? Now, just think of what the preterist is doing here with his replacement theology. He's arguing that Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation is the judgments on Israel because God's through with it. Now, how perverse that is when the whole point in the Old Testament is the reason for the judgments is to clarify the air so God can redeem Israel. That's the whole point of Matthew of Zechariah. No Jew would have read Zechariah. You couldn't read Zechariah any different than that. But no, the preterist argues that, oh, this is all... And, and then, he, then to add salt to the wound, not only does he argue completely backwards and argue that God's through with Israel, that all the judgments mean that that's the signal, God's through with Israel, throw it away, when in fact the Old Testament puts those prophecies to finish Israel's destiny. Then the preterist goes on and argues, because he's got to make all of Revelation fit now, before 70 A.D. Now, to make that happen, what has he got to do with the astronomical and geophysical catastrophes that are prophesied? How is he going to interpret those? Allegorizes them. The stars mean national leaders. Do you get that out of Zechariah when he's talking about the Mount of Oz being split? Half of it moving north, half of it moving south? I mean, come on. What's going on here? What's happened to the hermeneutics involved in this interpretation? So, that's where preteritism goes. Now, we've got another little twist. God doesn't abandon Israel and replace it with a church. The church has a role to play in history, and Israel has a role to play in history, and Israel's role isn't finished yet. Yet, just this week, we have an announcement, a formal announcement, by Knox Seminary, 
where D. James Kennedy is president, to the political leaders of this country saying that they object to Tim LaHaye and the dispensationalists who are misreading scripture and getting all this pro-Israel stuff going. Now, I said this is going to happen. You are going to watch as the, as the time, weeks and months go by, there's going to be a split in evangelicalism between the, between the dispensationalists and the replacement theologians. And it's going to happen over the political issue of the United States' relationship to Israel. Because D. Jane Kennedy's boys are arguing that Israel has no claim to the land. Oh, really? Where's Jesus coming back to? New York City? So, so watch it. This is where the, all this theory that we talked with and uh, hermeneutics and all the rest of it, you might have thought that was all academic. You'll find out how epidemic it is when you start seeing this thing unfold. And uh, we are the ones, supposedly, that are misreading the scriptures. We're the ones who never speak out on social issues. Well, if we never speak out on social issues, why are you concerned about what we're saying then? Obviously, dispensations are speaking out on social issues, and it's precisely because they are speaking out on social issues that it's engendered this reaction now by the part of their so-called reform camp. But it's going to happen. It's got to happen. These are two logical trains moving in two different directions, and there's going to be a collision. And you have to decide which one train you're going to be on. Okay, Matthew 24, continuing on page 140. Now, look at these prophecies. I've given all the verses. We won't have time tonight to look up the verses, but they're there if you're curious and want to look them up. The Old Testament prophesied. Now, follow this. The Old Testament prophesied that God would scatter Israel to the four winds. Remember that? We covered that way back when we started this. Israel looked forward in time. Back in Moses' day, they knew about this. That the nation was going to go down the tubes, but it wasn't going to be replaced. It was going to go into exile and then restored and and inherit the kingdom from the Messiah that was to come. God would scatter Israel to the four winds. Now watch the next prophecy. It also prophesied that God would gather his elect nation from four winds, one by one, accompanied to the sound of what? In Deuteronomy 30. And Isaiah 27. And Isaiah 43. A sound of what? Of a trumpet. Oh! And what's in verse 31 in Matthew 24? Sound of a trumpet. It's not new. It's not adding something. It's all there from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament context, the trumpet has to do with Jews coming back to the land of Israel. I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about Jews there. The scenario is Israel's, not the church's. Matthew 24, 31 doesn't speak of the rapture. It speaks, and by the way, there's no resurrection in Matthew 24, 31. Where's the resurrection there? No resurrection in that verse. There's a regathering, but there's no sign of resurrection. It speaks of Old Testament regathering. Neither do the later verses in Matthew 24, 40, 41 speak of any rapture. They speak in terms of Old Testament prophecy. They speak of the Noahic flood. And in the Noahic flood, who was taken away and who was saved? The believers were saved. 
Who was taken away and removed? The unbelievers. Ah, okay. Well, if Jesus is using the Noahic illustration, he simply confirms the Old Testament once again. Who has to be removed from the earth in order to get the kingdom started? Unbelievers. Ah, but who's removed at the rapture? Believers. They can't be the same events. They're two distinct events. They're exactly opposite each other. And that's why you can't mix them and you can't squash them all into verse 31. It won't work. Because if you put the rapture in verse 31, you've got the unbelievers staying and the believers leaving. When the Old Testament calls for exactly the opposite, for the believers to stay and the unbelievers to leave. How do we know that was confirmed? Because remember what John the Baptist said? He said the Messiah is coming and his shovel is in his hand. And the picture was how they used to shovel grain. And they used to fling it up in the air when the wind was blowing. And what's going off the grain? The chaff. And what falls back down off the edge of the shovel? The grain. That's how they separated the grain. They eat in the chaff? They care about making bread out of chaff? Or they care about making bread out of the grain? Out of the grain. What's left? The grain. What leaves? The chaff. So, all this imagery is totally logically consistent. The unbelievers have to leave in order to make room for the kingdom on earth. But at the rapture, it is the believers who leave to go to be with the Lord. That is why pre-tribulationists keep insisting you can't mix these two events. They're distinct, different. Any more than in the Old Testament you could have mixed the first and second advent of Christ, you can't mix these details about the second advent either. Okay. Continuing then this paragraph on page 140. Pre-tribulationism, therefore, maintains a consistent distinction between Israel and the church, leaving Matthew 24 addressed to Israel. The profound difference in perspective between the future of Israel and the future of the church can be observed by comparing Matthew 24, Old Testament view of the future of Israel, with the view that Jesus shares with the churches in Revelations 2 and 3. In the letters to the seven churches, Jesus focused believers' attention on eternal rewards after resurrection. No mention is made of any special prior events except when in 3.10 he excludes the church from the tribulation to come. In, In the letters to the seven churches that are specifically addressed to Christians, find me one verse in any of the letters to the seven churches that tells Christians to look about the destruction of the temple, the abomination in the temple, conditions in the city of Jerusalem, or any other such topic. They're not in the letters to the seven churches because that's not part of the church's destiny. Two distinct areas. Okay, now that's all we have tonight. Next time, not next week, but the next time, and this should be the last interruption for... I apologize for this year. I don't know what's happened to my schedule this year. Worst year I've had in the whole, all the years we've done this class. But next time we're going to go on 2 Thessalonians 2 because that's the other passage that supposedly pre-tribulationism distorts. 
Father, we thank you for the fact that history has a purpose. History has a goal. We know where history is going and its outline at least because you have condescended to reveal those details to us. To give us hope. To give us a basis for operating by faith against all kinds of catastrophes, all kinds of fears, all kinds of uncertainties. We have our feet on solid ground. We know where the future is. We know where history is going. And we can continue to worship you with that heart of resting hope. The hope that is born by this eschatology of the future. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Um, questions? Yes. Tim LaHaye. Oh, he's one of the uh, outstanding preacher people today. But it's his fictionalized account. I mean, I've not read it, so how, do you have any idea how much fiction he throws in there with the Oh, it's embellished. He's deliberately embellishing because you have to to write a story. But the guys that he has write, I mean, he doesn't write them. He, the, whatever his name is, writes them. But um, uh, LaHaye, I'm sure, exercises plot control over the over the stories. I haven't read them either, so I can't speak to the details. My kids have read them. My, my older ones. And I must say, of all the novels here that encourage your children to say that that world has, the comments that come from them, they said, I knew God was big. I didn't think God was that big. And LaHaye is an excellent job of describing a lot of scenarios that we're going to go on and Well, interesting things happened um, from what I have learned from LaHaye. He came out with a prophecy study Bible back two years ago. And the story behind that prophecy study Bible is that he he did not anticipate unbelievers reading those books. What they anticipated was the books were just to strengthen the Christians. Well, after the second and third book, he, he was inundated by mail from unbelievers who had read the things and had become Christians. And all of a sudden, by the third or fourth in the book, they realized, oh, geez, these are evangelistic tools. Well, then he discovered the problem is that so few churches teach prophecy that when these people were new Christians, they'd go to the church for years and never hear a prophecy. And then they wonder, what's, there's a disconnect going on here. So that's how that prophecy study Bible got. It was just a desperate attempt to create something that would, in an elementary way, provide something like the Schofield Bible did 50 years ago to the church. And so the sad thing is that people read these things, and then uh, they hear some replacement theology guy say, oh, well, that's just Tim LaHaye's fiction, and kind of thing like that, and they, they hate it because they, it's raising questions in their own congregations. And how come we never hear about this, you know, kind of question. 
And so it's putting pressure on, on the non-dispensational folks. But um, uh, the, the book series has had a very interesting spiritual impact. And I, it's probably due, I guess, to the uncertainty thing. I mean, it was, what, 30 years ago when um, Hal Lindsey wrote The Late Great Planet Earth? And that was the backbone of a lot of people becoming Christians back in the days of the hippies. Uh, so people want to know where history is going. They may not think it through. They may not even ask themselves these questions. But the problem is that intuitively, I think we all understand that if history is going nowhere, we're going nowhere. So if our lives are to have meaning and purpose, the whole, I mean, parts can't have meaning if the whole doesn't have meaning. And that's, that's a simple way of putting it. But if history has, is not going anywhere, there's no goal in history, evil isn't going to be dealt with in history, well then, hey, come on. Uh, we'll just revert to all be existentialists and live for the moment because there is no hope for the future. So that's the choice. And eschatology, like we said when we started this eschatology section, everybody, you and your neighbor and your children and your parents, Everyone has an eschatology. The question is whether that eschatology that they have is scriptural or not. But we all have one. Well, they wouldn't. Yeah, but the Jew, there wouldn't be Jewish believers there. In that. I guess the holy ones. It's usually used of angels, I believe. Because it's the same thing in Daniel seven, same kind of imagery. That they're surrounded with the holy ones, and so uh, the church is, doesn't appear to be in that either. It's just, it's just a generic reference to, to a holy one. It means he comes back with an army. Yeah, I don't believe so. I, I haven't studied it in detail, uh, Donna, but I think I think it's just a generic, the holy ones. Yeah. Yes, George. Well. Existentialism is a very greasy term. Um, what it, it's a word that's applied to a strain of thinking that developed, uh, some believe Kierkegaard developed it back years ago, who was a German, uh, Danish Lutheran. And here's, what, here's Kierkegaard's issue that he raised. He looked at passages like Abraham and uh, Genesis 22. And he looked at that passage where God told Abraham to kill his son. Kierkegaard's point, because he had inherited a frame of reference uh, of unbelief, yet he came to the scriptures and he said, you know, Abraham, at that existential moment, could have jumped either way. 
could have killed his son or disobeyed God. And the existentialists tend to look at that as it's a completely amoral decision. It doesn't matter whether he killed his son or disobeyed God because there was moral ambiguity. Kierkegaard would argue that if God had said, thou shalt not murder, and God was saying, thou shalt murder, that there's such an inherent contradiction, ethically and morally, that conscience no longer can operate. And if conscience can't operate in in the moment, there is no basis for moral judgments. You just choose to do this or that. And they developed, as you come into Sartre in in the 20th century, um, I think he he says someplace where he says, if you see a woman walking on the side of the road, an old lady walking on the side of the road, you could run her over with a car or not. It doesn't really matter morally. Um, In other words, what it represents is the vanity of Ecclesiastes taken to its logical conclusion. Some of the existentialists are very fascinating people to read. Because unlike silly American students and certain people on the faculty that always claim to be advanced intellectuals, and then they turn around and make moral judgments, like, for example, the war in Iraq is wrong. Uh, First time I ever heard them say something is wrong. Excuse me, I thought we threw out moral rules, and now all of a sudden we resurrected moral rules to say the Iraqi war is wrong. Now, where did we get that from? So, because man made in God's image can't throw out the moral rules, somewhere, sometime in the next 48 hours, that person is going to make a moral judgment and they can't help it. Um, You know, uh, Francis Schaeffer once said, the prostitute says something is wrong when her check bounces. Um, The point is that no matter who you are, you always have an inescapable moral judgment. Well, the existentialists are struggling with that. And they're trying to deal with the fact that uh, an evolved ape, with God not there, does not have moral judgments. So, it's whatever you choose. And, and, and there's, all, there's all kinds of schema. There's Christian existentialists and atheist existentialists. I, I'm drawing a very, very simple picture here. What I'm trying to say is that existentialists devote a lot of attention to choice of the moment. And they have done a lot of interesting thinking about choices. If you want to see existential handle in a layman's way that is pretty good, read Francis Schaeffer. Because he, he deals with that. Because remember, he, where did Schaeffer minister? He ministered in Europe. What was the dom- dominant philosophy in his mission field? It was existentialism. So Schaeffer got it again and again and again. And, and he has some great illustrations. His favorite one, I think, is John Paul Sartre, who who was an existentialist, said there's no such thing as morals and this and that. And then he is a Frenchman. When France was putting down the Algerian revolt, he argued against the French army going to Algeria because it was wrong. See, even Sartre couldn't, couldn't have finally, he had to say something was wrong. And that's why I'm just waiting for one of these anti-war people to come into my, my presence. Because the first thing I'm going to ask them is, who cares whether it's right or wrong? Maybe we enjoy squashing Iraqis like I step on mosquitoes. What are you going to do about it? Why is it wrong? Why should I listen to you? And I like to push them back to the wall and say, where are you getting your morals from? 
You know, I mean, how do we go from being a pothead and a fornicator, and all of a sudden we get moral about the war? Yeah, but they don't have any sovereignty of God in the background. They don't have any sovereignty of God in the background, so there's no determinism there. Does anybody else have questions? We don't want to let George dominate here. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, George. It's fatalistically determined. <laughs> There are, there are those people who I believe, I, I don't know David Jeremiah, but I just know that this is an old argument. The argument is that if someone has rejected the gospel of Christ prior to the rapture, the rapture occurs, all the believers go. That person is now left in the tribulation. Can that person then have the second chance in the sense of believing while he is in the, the tribulation. The passage that people bring into this is either First Thessalonians 1 or Second Thessalonians 1, where it says the tribulation has come upon them to delude them and so forth. It's, it's, it's like it's a damning process, a hardening process. Uh, the problem I see with that, though, is that God is so gracious that, I mean, how do you predict when somebody is going to believe? Or not believe. I, I just, I've just never been impressed with the argument. I don't see why people can't believe in the tribulation like they can believe any other time. Well, that's why that. Yeah, I. I, I didn't know there was some that, that about well, it is the first or second Thessalonians is the passage. That's the one that they pick that I've heard of. Anything else? What? Yeah, that's another strange thing that happens in the, in the tribulation. That, boy, I tell you what, how you you can't even get sense out of it by allegorizing it, but yet it's there in the text. And we have to respect the text, and it said that angels going to evangelize. And angels. Well, I don't say evangelize. Evangelize means good message. What the angels, 
announce is the gospel of the kingdom. And how do the angels announce it? You you wonder, do they intercept SATCOM? uh, And all of a sudden, everybody's on their cell radios or something, and bing bong, all of a sudden, this voice comes in from outer space and says, I've got news for you. (laughs) Um, Whatever it happens, it's there that the angels are involved in that evangelistic effort or the announcing of the kingdom. It's, a, it's just all kinds of supernatural events and catastrophes take place. I mean, look at that um, Zechariah 14 passage tonight. Look at how many supernatural things are happening there. And it's, it's just that people are blown away who live in the tribulation. There's no excuse for anyone living in that tribulation not to believe. In fact, in Revelation 6, remember the passage we talk about when we deal with predatorism? The, the, this is the awful day of the Lord God Almighty. Why uh, He sits on the throne and the Lamb, or something that's mentioned, and they not only know that God's there, they can distinguish two of the three persons of the Trinity. These are unbelievers. So that shows you how informed they are during the tribulation on this awful thing where you would think, for crying out loud, people, I mean, what does it take? And that's part of the demonstration of of the tribulation, that every age of history demonstrates God's glory and man's fallenness. And the tribulation is going to say, no matter how much hurt, no matter how much fright, no matter how much adversity, no matter how many catastrophes, people still will not turn to the Lord. Now, what is that? What is that? It's an indictment of depravity. And that's what always amuses me why reformed people who are so into depravity have a problem with this. When it's, this is exactly a demonstration of depravity here. So, well, next, uh, not next week, but the week after, we'll come back and revisit uh, the Thessalonian passages and try to finish the pre-trib view. Okay?